This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and we're going to talk about jazz this hour. We're going to talk about it with uh, Kristen Korb, a jazz bassist and vocalist, and one of the headliners for the NDSU High School Invitational Jazz Festival, which is Friday and Saturday at NDSU in the Reinecke Fine Arts Center. We'll tell you how you can get tickets and all that other stuff in just a few minutes. I'm also joined by Kay Beckerman. She is the Promotions Director for NDSU's Division of Fine Arts. Glad to have you with us, Kay. Thank you for having me. And we'll be talking to you about the actual event, but I want to get right into it with Kristen Korb, jazz bassist and vocalist. Uh, tell us your story. How did you get to where you are? Well, I grew up in Billings, Montana, so not so different from growing up in Fargo in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and uh, listening to country music. And by the time I got into junior high, there was the vocal jazz ensemble. Ah. And they were having fun. They were moving to the music. People got to solo. And I wanted to be in the band. And my guitar teacher had called the choir director and said, hey, uh, what does my student need to do to get ready for this? It's, it's not a guitar. It's a bass guitar. <laughs> I was like, whatever. I want to be in the band. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was one of those classrooms that music was being played before school, after school, during lunch. And I lived in the choir room and heard things like Ella Fitzgerald and Ray Brown and Manhattan Transfer and Sarah Vaughan. And I just fell in love with the music. So you went from guitar to upright bass. To electric bass, actually. It was, yeah, just regular electric bass. And then when I got into high school, I was like, oh, man, I'm pretty serious about this. And, you know, at the time, you really couldn't go to most universities and get a degree in electric bass. So I switched to upright and talked to the orchestra director, and he worked out a deal with me so I could just do the after-school orchestra. And... I was awful. (laughs) But that was the start of me learning upright and then, you know, going on to college and studying it. And And where'd you go? And then what happened after college? Well, I did my bachelor's in music education at Eastern Montana College, which Mm -hmm. is now MSU Billings. And then I went to University of California, San Diego for my master's in classical bass performance. Met Ray Brown while I was down in San Diego. And Ray Brown was a very well-known jazz bassist. He's, he's credited with being like one of the, the founders of modern jazz bass playing. He took all the stuff from like Jimmy Blanton, who was playing with Duke Ellington, and doing all those great, you know, uh, walking lines and, uh, and soloing and, you know, being a took all the best of all the walking and all the soloing and put it together. You know, I remember I saw one of Duke Ellington's last concerts. It was in the 70s. And the walking piece, he would start the A-train or whatever, and he would walk around the band and basically as they were playing and kind of chatting with the folks that weren't actually doing the solos then, and he'd always get right back to the front for the boom. Yep. <laughs> for the finish. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, so I got to meet Ray Brown and got some got a lesson with him and talked about music, and I ended up having my first CD with him on Telark. Ah, wow. Introducing Kristen Korb with the Ray Brown Trio. That's a pretty good introduction. It was a pretty heavy lesson, yes. <laughs> and now you have another CD. How many CDs do you have? I think this is, is this six? Is that two? Uh, six or seven? I think this is six. Okay, so let's hear an example of Kristen Korb, jazz bassist and vocalist. Let's hear a little bit of uh, Green Dolphin Street.
Kristen Korb, and uh, who's playing with you there? Um, on that track, just you, me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm me, pretty astute, aren't I? And me, myself, and I. Yeah, well, you play very well. And tell us about the music. Tell us about that particular tune. Where did it come from? How did it evolve? Well, for me, uh, all of the songs on the new CD, "What's Your Story," come from inspirations of people that I know. And people that have, whether it's been teachers, mentors, friends, uh, you know, this particular one, uh, Green Dolphin Street is a very popular song within the jazz idiom. And uh, Oscar Peterson did a recording of it many years ago. Mm. And when I was in a bass lesson with John Clayton, he said, why don't you play Oscar's solo on the bass? And it was one of Oscar's few solos where he didn't play like a bazillion notes. It's really spacious, and it's always just kind of stuck with me. Uh, so it was fun for me to have a song that I just do playing and singing and explore the possibilities and, you know, employing a little bit of the Oscar Peterson piano influence. Well, when I was a, a kid, I thought of jazz as two different kinds of things. One was a small combo, and the other was big band, you know. But there are so many different kinds of jazz. How do you describe your form of jazz? Hanging out with my friends at a party. Yeah. It's really what it is. Um, for me, it's about the conversations that you have with each other. It's about having good times, looking at each other over the instruments, um, musical jokes back and forth. Um, it's about telling good stories, huh. you know, and about just, you know, as the bass player, my job is to be the ultimate hostess. You know, the the chips are in the bowls and there's plenty for everybody to drink and you just kind of clean up around the place. So all anybody else has to worry about is just having a good time. Okay. Well, let's have a good time. I, one of the things that uh, really intrigues me about jazz and the vocalizing is the scat singing. Tell us a little bit about scat singing and how you got started. Well, back in that choir room in junior high... I walked into school one morning and heard I was like, whoa, that's really weird. <laughs> but it was cool. It Sounds was, like fun to me. It was Ella Fitzgerald singing oh, yeah. Lemon Drop. Oh, and, you know, she just, that sense of joy in Ella's sound, she always sounded like she was smiling when she sang. And I unfortunately never got to meet her, but she is one of our great scat ladies and always you know the different cuts you could hear she's laughing it's very playful um you know it's it's improvised she's making up her melodies you know you take the material that's written and you put your own feelings on it what's your commentary on the situation that's given now now it starts as, as improvisation does it stay as improvisation or does it slide into a groove after a while well, I'm, I'm thinking groove. I mean, that's part of the story. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever you're telling a story or a joke, you know, there's timing involved. There's pauses. There's waiting for the, the reaction of others around you. So for me, like um, if I'm playing like the drummer on the CD is Jeff Hamilton. Um, I'm always finding somebody in the band that I'm having the conversation with. And some of that conversation means you listen. And then some of it means you respond. So 
just as, I mean, we're improvising right now Mm -hmm. in our conversation. We have some ideas as to what we want to talk about, but the details are unclear until we start discussing. Well, let's hear a little example of scat singing. Is this, uh, is it them, their eyes? Yes. Well, let's, let's hear a little bit of this. Kristen Korb doing a little scat singing there. <laughs> and now, tell us about the first time you tried to scat sing. What was that like? Well, I had this really great choir director, and he was Mr. Newburn, and he was, it was just what we did as warm ups in, okay, in our sure. choir. And it was just daily, like, you know, la, 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 la. he would put on the recording of Have Blues, and it would have like a little melody. About Buddha. Buddha. So then everybody in the class would just Buddha. So it was one of those things like I didn't realize it was supposed to be a stressful situation. <laughs> and then for me, my first time of really going for it was that we were doing a Tuxedo Junction, the Manhattan Transfer sure. tune. And I wanted to sing the solo. And it was you know, competitive. And I was like, Mr. Newman, I want the solo. I want the solo. <laughs> no, you're not getting it. I was like, why? Why would I not get it? You're playing bass. You can't sing and play at the same time. I can't. But, well, you know, if you're going to sing, then what's going to happen to your bass playing? The time will be bad. You'll sing out of tune. It's like, well, what if I practice? So this is the seminal moment. This is when Kristen Korb put jazz, bass, and vocals together. It, it really was. It was one of those things I... I've borrowed the record. <laughs> I said, Mr. Newman, may I borrow that record, the Manhattan Transfer? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to cheat. I'm going to win this solo. I'm going to learn the bass line just like the guy on the record plays it. And I'm going to do the vocal just like the woman plays it. So I learned everything. I wasn't really improvising per se. But the information that I got from that enabled me to do all kinds of other things. Well, the strange thing to me, not the strange thing, but the thing about scat singing that uh – interests me is that it really is like making another instrument. You're not – there aren't any lyrics there, but there are sounds that yes. kind of go with everybody else's sounds. It's a language. Yeah. It's absolutely a language. And if you do something that doesn't fit the conversation, you know, if you're in a group of friends and you're talking about something and there's a buoyancy in the sound and you have somebody come to the group and Hey guys, what you doing? You know, then it's like sucks the wind out of the conversation. It's like that didn't fit. <laughs> or if somebody's too exuberant for the situation, you know. So it's one of those things you want to fit in with what the what's going on, and the syllables themselves aren't necessarily all that important. But it's that idea of matching the the groove and matching the the lilt and the spirit of what that number is that you're. You know, giving your own personal commentary on. Kristen Korb is speaking with me in studio. She's a jazz bassist and vocalist. She is here for the NDSU High School Invitational Jazz Festival 2013. It's this Friday and Saturday at NDSU's Reinecke Fine Arts Center. There's a special concert 
that uh, will feature Kristen Korb and Rex Richardson, uh, Dean Sorensen on trombone, David Stanek on drums, and Matt Olson on saxophone. Rex Richardson plays trumpet, and uh, you'll hear that at 7 o'clock uh, on Saturday evening at uh, Festival Concert Hall. It's uh, five bucks for adults and students and seniors are two dollars, so the price is extraordinarily right. <laughs> Take it in, Kristen Korb and other jazz folks uh, entertaining you, along with this uh, high school invitational jazz festival. I'm going to talk with uh, Kay about that in just a couple of minutes, but I want to get back to the CD that you handed us just before we went on the air. Kristen Korb, what's your story? Your newest CD. What's the market like for jazz CDs? It's small compared to pop music and things like that, Mm -hmm. but I think that it's still a very vibrant and viable thing. I mean, the people that love jazz are passionate about it, and I'm finding more and more in places that I play, there are people who love jazz and don't even know it. But they'll find themselves in a situation where I have so many people come up to me, it's like, what is this music that you're playing? Oh, well, they call it jazz. Really? That's jazz? But I don't like jazz, but I like what you do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like, well, you know what? You like jazz. Maybe you heard other things you didn't like. but um, And maybe with all of these high school invitational jazz festivals in another generation, we'll have lots of jazz aficionados who will buy lots of music. Absolutely. Okay. We'll be back with uh, Kristen Korb and Kay Beckerman, and we'll talk about that high school invitational jazz festival in just a moment. Tonight's television lineup on Prairie Public starts with primetime soaps on pioneers of television. Then at 8 Central, Henry Ford is featured in a special two-hour American experience. Tune in tonight on Prairie Public. Here at now on Prairie Public, I'm Doug Hamilton, and you just heard a, a little piano interlude from You're Getting to Be a Habit, the piano played by Randy Halberstadt, and that bass line comes to us from Kristen Korb, my guest in studio today. She's here for the NDSU High School Invitational Jazz Festival, and Kay Beckerman is Promotions Director for NDSU's Division of Fine Arts. And Kay, tell us a bit about the festival. How big is it going to be this year? Ah, This year we have, I think we have 13 or 14 bands from around the region participating. They'll be be showing up 8 o'clock Friday morning. They're actually from all over the region. We have bands from Minot, Mandan, Grand Forks, Fargo, and also uh, several bands from Winnipeg this year, which will be very exciting to hear that. And when you say bands, are these big bands? These these... are typically high school bands, typically the junior high, senior high, or um, junior and senior level bands. We do have a couple of middle school bands coming, and these are the premier bands in each of these schools. Now, are they primarily playing the Dixieland uh, classics? No, I think they all vary. They vary quite a bit. And then they take all these great talents, and they work with people like Kristen and (laughs) Rex, and it's a wonderful experience for all of the students. I would think so. Having the opportunity to interact with professionals, uh, that's 
that's pretty special. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, it is. Now, are there individual competitions as well, or is this a competition, or is it just a celebration of music? It's just a celebration of music, really. Each band has a chance to perform for one another, and they uh, also have clinics and master classes with these uh, guest artists, such as Kristen and Rex. And then also they have a small concert on Friday night. And then Saturday night, the big concert on Saturday night, we'll have all of these guest performers in the NDSU Jazz Ensemble, which is our premier jazz ensemble on campus. And they are under the direction of Dr. Kyle Mack. When did this uh, festival start? Uh, this is the 31st year. Wow. Yeah. So well, I know Kyle Mack uh, has been in a jazz performer in town for years. He mm-hmm. used to be with the now defunct uh, Jazz Arts Group, uh, yep. which uh, was a wonderful organization while mm-hmm. it was going. But uh, again, uh, needed some support. It needed money. It needed uh, people to come to the shows and things like that. So mm-hmm. this is an opportunity, I think, to build up jazz. Let's oh, yeah. And this, this concert on Saturday night has always been very popular. We've always had great crowds, and it's always a wonderful experience. Now, you played jazz when you no. were younger? You <laughs> no. Didn't? I was classical piano. Oh, so there you go. I don't huh? know how to improvise. <laughs> <laughs> we can work on that. We can, okay. I can help you with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, well, let's talk a bit about that, that jazz piece. That improvisation, because I'm thinking, you know, the bigger the band, and I and actually I've emceed for big bands for years, and the bigger the band, I think maybe the less improvisation, because you you do have the individual performer get up and do a solo, but it's those small combos, I think, where you're kind of reading each other. There's more of that. In the big bands, it depends on what composer you're looking at. Charles Mingus was one of the greats that really started to integrate, and actually Duke Elling did did quite a bit of it, too, in integrating um, sections of pieces that were highly arranged and then sections where guys just kind of were doing the Mm -hmm. free-for-all. It's really evident in Mingus's things (laughs) where you can hear like – a lot of stuff that makes sense and then all of a sudden it goes and then it comes back to making sense again. Um, Depending on the composers, they do play with that a bit more now than they used to. But definitely within those smaller ensembles, you have fewer voices. It's it's a lot easier to have that conversation. Well, Kristen Korb's got her chops now. She's made several (laughs) CDs. She plays professionally lots of places. So when you have a little sit-in session, what are the parameters? What's good jazz etiquette? Well, I mean, it's... I guess one of the things, like, I was just on a a cruise ship for a little floating festival, and it was a little more... um, maybe Dixieland influence, not quite Dixieland. It was somewhere between Dixie and Swing era. Mm-hmm. So we had some like Great American Songbook things and whatever, um, but also some pieces that were very specifically Dixie. And within that particular setting, I noticed there's a lot of uh, protocol. And one of the things that I was a little surprised with with this particular group was that nobody took more than a chorus because they looked at we had three horns, full rhythm section, and if everybody takes five or six choruses, it it goes forever and nobody's interested in that. So everybody kind of said what they needed to say in one chorus, or if it was a fast song, maybe two. But they really said what they needed to say in a very short period of time. If it was a slower song, they would even split the choruses. Like, you take the first half, I'll take the second. And you just look at whoever you want to do that with, or some guys would look at each other and trade it as, you know, I'll play a short phrase and then you play the next. And they would go back and forth like that. So the idea is that to keep it fun and light and nobody has to show off. It's just be yourself, do your thing, support each other. Um, if it's a, a bluesy sort of thing, sometimes guys will look at each other and, and do background fills to support somebody else that's soloing. Mm-hmm. You know, something subtle. And that just really pumps up the soloist going, oh, you're playing for me? 
you're you're supporting my ideas? Wow. And and it's just like the whole room just starts to pop because it's about paying attention to each other and not trying to outshine anybody else. And sometimes, I mean, there must be just such an incredibly good riff that uh, you're you're struck by it. Oh, maybe, yeah. Maybe want to repeat it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's And it's just so much fun because you never know what's going to happen. But when everybody's there for the same thing, the, the problems happen. Like if somebody decides they need to show off or they're insecure and they play longer than they should or um, – feel that it should be all about them, that's when the stuff gets boring. And it's like, really? That's uh, – the rest of us are here too. But if everybody's in there for the same reasons and it can be so exciting and for people that you don't even have to know anything about music to see the conversations and the glances back and forth across the bandstand and it's almost like watching a good game of basketball. Well, I'm really glad I asked the question about how you kind of got here and you talked about your high school experience in some detail because obviously one of the things you're going to be doing while you're here is working with high school jazz performers. Uh, what are the kinds of things that uh, – you find particularly useful in your working with them? I mean, what do they really need to know that you can offer? One of the things, well, I was just at South this morning. Sure. And, uh, That's uh, South Senior High School in Fargo. Yes. And um, I got to work with both a choir and with uh, two bands. And some of the things for me in trying to communicate with them is that this is not uh, foreign. This is music that they already have within them. And, you know, the theory and all the technical things that they have to learn academically should be driven by a desire to communicate. And so they can learn those things, but but put it in a way that it's it's something they want to say, that they can play with each other, that those ideas that they have, they can draw upon the music that they've already been listening to that may or may not be jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a thing with the choir today that they were doing an African thing. And listening to the chord, I heard for myself just in – living life and going to the gym and hearing what happens musically in the gym uh, when I don't have my headphones in. <laughs> you know, like some Adele, uh, you know, stuff from Skyfall, shine like a diamond, you know. So I started singing some of these things to the kids while they were, you know, like, well, what do we do? We don't have any ideas. And I was like, you guys have all this music in you. So I started quoting stuff and all of a sudden they realized it didn't have to be something that was from outside of them. Mm-hmm. And so they started coming up with these amazing Amazing ideas on their own because they were given permission to be okay with who they are. That sounds like a lot of fun to me. Oh, it's a blast. Uh, Kay, you've got 13 mm-hmm. or 14 bands from mm-hmm. around the region, and uh, that, that would seem to make a pretty good audience for Saturday night. Oh, yes, but there's always room in Festival Concert Hall. Glad to hear that. Yes. So uh, what what is the capacity of that hall anyway? Uh, we see just under 1,000. Okay. So there's room at the inn. Yes, uh, there's. Adults, $5. Students and seniors, $2. Again, the concert is 7 o'clock on Saturday, February 2nd at Festival Concert Hall, and you will hear headliners Kristen Korb, and you've just heard a good sample of her bass playing and her vocalizations. They are wonderful. Rex Richardson on trumpet and also featuring Dean Sorensen on trombone, David Stanek on drums, and Matt Olson on saxophone. The NDSU High School Invitational Jazz Festival 2013. Right here in town, take it in. The price is right, and the kids will enjoy playing (laughs) a lot. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you so much. The news is next. 
This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. Well, every now and then, our Bruce Berg comes to us with a commentary from Jamestown, and this time he's been thinking about those big contests, those really big games, you know, like uh, that big bison game and that amazing Brock Jensen thing that uh, won the game near the end of it and got them to the finals. So let's hear a little Bruce Berg in his essay, Caring. It's fourth down and three for the bison on the Georgia Southern four-yard line. It's been one tough game against a tough opponent, and it's been one tough game to watch. Coach Bowl calls it the hardest game that he's had to endure in three decades of coaching. Two timeouts have been called to prolong the pain. The grandmother of one of the bison players talks about the awful wait before the next snap. Do the words tough, hardest to watch, awful wait, ring a bell with you? Do those terms seem fitting to you to describe a game? Well, they do, if you care. Now, I thought I would rise above that painful caring about athletic contests when I reached my age. I know I'd heard many athletes say that losing hurt more than winning felt good. Well, that's caring. And we know that the Biden didn't lose as Brock Jensen bolted into the land of milk and honey on that fourth down play, and the Bison got to do it all over again in Texas. Now, I excused myself in 1987 when I paced the floor as the Twins beat the Cards for their first series win. I didn't think that I'd see that happen. And in 91, I paced again because, well, I suppose I didn't expect to experience a Twins team doing it again. Darren Ersted's role in the Angels' 2002 World Series win was indeed fun, but mainly after the seven games were over. And Jerry Meyer's basketball teams of the 80s brought lots of pride and joy to Jamestowners, but there was a lot of shifting and sweating and writhing and wondering before a great coach held the hardware in 76 and 78 and 82 and 87. It's been the same with the bison. After a lifetime of putting up with North Dakota, where's North Dakota? I suppose it's been nice to tell the ignorant to check the playoff scores. I admit to admiring some people who can still ask, in all innocence, uh, who is playing? And there are times when I'd enjoy the freedom not to care so much. And I thought maybe I'd reached that stage last December, but that fourth down play with three yards to go against Georgia Southern, that told me otherwise. This is Bruce Berg, Jamestown. We'll be back with more in a moment. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. It's almost time for the annual Short and Sweet Membership Drive at Prairie Public. It starts Wednesday, and this is the one that involves mouth-watering truffles. Don't miss your opportunity to support your sweet tooth as well as your listening habit. If you don't want to wait, go to prairiepublic.org to begin or renew your membership today. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. And 
Along with Bruce Berg, every now and then, Tom Ezern comes along. NDSU historian Tom Ezern has our Plains Folk column, and this week it's titled Prairie Nights. When you call me that, smile. Who hasn't said or heard that grim admonition or some adaptation of it? This line, placed onto the tongue of the Virginian in Owen Wister's novel of that title, is the distillation of the cowboy myth in Western America. Many of us are still trying to live up to it today. Wister published The Virginian, A Horseman of the Plains, in 1902. Downstream from it are all the novels, movies, and TV shows that either adopted Wister's title outright or just appropriated his characters and values. Thus, a dude from Philadelphia taught us how to think about cowboys. The Virginian set the type of the cowboy in memory because he was a natural aristocrat. He behaved like a gentleman, defending the honor of women, suffering hardship without complaint, fighting for what he knew was right, not because he had genteel upbringing, because, however, it was in his blood. All this stuff of the mythic cowboy Wister had worked out a few years earlier in 1895 in an article for Harper's Magazine. The Western painter Frederick Remington encouraged Wister to write it. Its title is The Evolution of the Cowpuncher. Now, the word evolution in Wister's title is key because as he sees things, genetics were the making of the cowboy. He opens with a scene where a rough-looking range rider and an aristocratic English lord are riding together in the same railroad coach. They despise one another on sight, not realizing, as Wister observes, that they are alike. The English lord ends up on a ranch in Texas where he takes to the saddle and fits right in with the wild riders of the plains. This is because the English lord and the Texas cowboys have in common the racial virtues of the Anglo-Saxon. Put them on horseback and they are transformed into chivalric knights. No doubt Sir Launcelot bore himself with a grace and breeding of which our unpolished fellow of the cattle trail has only the latent possibility, writes Wister. But in personal daring and in skill as to the horse, the knight and the cowboy are nothing but the same Saxon of different environments. Cowboys resembled the knights of old in other ways. They wore armor, leather chaps, and they practiced heraldry, adopting distinctive forms of dress, riding for ranches known by their brands. Historians point out that much of what made cowboys cowboys, from ways of speaking to ways of handling cattle, was of Hispanic origin. Well, Wister explains that the Anglo-Saxons may have gotten their horses and cattle and ways from the Mexicans, but the Saxons improved on them and took over the range. The Saxons could do this because they were, naturally, a superior race. This presents us with something disturbing about the cowboy myth as developed by Wister. It is deeply and openly racist. In order to ennoble his prairie knights of the saddle, he finds it necessary to denigrate other peoples. Wister insults not only Mexicans, but also Poles, Swedes, French, Italians, Germans, and Jews. These other folk are fit only, at best for farming, being unsuited for the rigors of the range. I know a few Norwegian ranchers in Greenwood County, Kansas, some Ukrainian ranchers in Billings County, North Dakota, and in fact, 
plenty of ethnic immigrant ranchers from all over the plains who might wish to have a word with Wister. They should get Wister and Remington both in a room and adjust their attitudes. Something like, when you call me a Norwegian, smile. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and we just heard from Tom Ezer in his Prairie Nights essay. Just one of the things you hear on Prairie Public. And we are now joined in studio by Bill Thomas, who is the director of radio for Prairie Public. And he's joining us because Andy Magnus with Extreme North Dakota Iceman Triathlon, something happened and occasionally happens in radio. And we'll have Andy on and talk about that in the future. But we You know, these extreme winter sport things, you yeah. don't know what could have happened. He may have had an accident. You he think may, so? You know, he might have, like, <laughs> might have uh, you know, cross-country skied into a snowbank and got stuck or something. He so. might have practiced a little too hard. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll link up with him and get more on that story because it is a fun one and we'll, we'll bring it to you later uh, in the week perhaps or – in the future, at any rate, the actual competition isn't until late in February. But Bill is here, and it gives us an opportunity to talk about some things that might be new, for example, on the weekend. Yeah, we're looking at changes, and uh, I'm, I'm always curious about people's thoughts about this. Uh, there are some new programs that are out there that we have played as specials occasionally, but they're available as weekly series now, and we're looking at possibly trying to slot them in on the weekends. The question is always, of course, you put something new in, you got to take something off, and uh, everything that's on has people who like it, so it's always hard to take things off. But there's a series called Radio Lab. Uh, it's produced by Robert Krolwich and Chad Abumrod. Uh, very dense, full of information shows with with great use of sound. Uh, they, they, you feel like you're in almost a, a, a surreal movie as they go through creating all these images and sound layered on top of each other and joking and quotes put together in funny ways, but still you learn so much from them. I was going to say Robert Krolwich is so good at explaining complicated things. Right. And, th- and so they decided to take advantage of that and made this whole show that each one is about uh, uh, some concept that may be a little difficult to understand. And they use sound and interviews to put it together in in a way that's really fun and exciting to listen to, though you have to really listen. If you, if you don't pay attention, you get lost. Uh, anyway, Radio Lab, uh, we've, we've run some Radio Labs as um, – as specials, but we haven't run it as a continuous series because it wasn't available as a continuous series until just recently. So we're looking at possibly putting that in on the weekends. And then there's a series called um, the uh, TED Radio Hour that's based around the TED Talks. Uh, The TED Talks are just about 10 minutes long. So uh, the TED Radio Hour will often have a couple of talks in it and then some surrounding information. They, They will put the talk in some context. They'll talk with the person who gave the talk. Uh, and sometimes there's people who've given two or three TED Talks, and they may play excerpts from them. So uh, it's an hour show based around this idea of these succinct summaries of big, important ideas. Uh, and that's what a TED Talk is. And and these uh, th- th- that makes for great radio. And they, they figured out a, a good way to do it, I think. Well, these are two great ideas, Radio Lab and TED Talks. Uh, and this is kind of the interactive place, I guess, for Prairie Public. We can have people email us or call. And sure. I would encourage people, if they have comments about this, email is a great way to get a hold of me. I'm B. Thomas. That's like B as in Bill, 
Thomas, B. Thomas, at prairiepublic.org. Uh, or if you want to call in, you can just call Prairie Public. It's 800-241-6900. I'm sorry, 800-359-6900. And uh, just ask to be connected to me. And if you get my voicemail, leave me a message. Or if you get me, you talk to me. And uh, that that's a great way to talk about these things. You know, another show that we're looking at that's somewhat different from these two is The Moth. Oh, yes. Uh, which is a storytelling yeah. show. And The Moth is a, an event that was developed by some people who are very they, – they believe the power of narrative and the power of storytelling is really strong. And they worked – there have been storytelling festivals and a lot of times people there would get up and they'd tell old folk tales. And it was good. You know, I mean I've been to a couple of storytelling festivals. It's great. But what The Moth is about is people – not telling old Kentucky backwoods stories or a Jewish folklore or a Norwegian troll of tale or something like that, but people telling personal stories from their own lives. It's kind of like a story slam. I mean, right, right. They do that and, and they, they have different people come up and tell stories. They, they work with them to develop the way the stories go. Anyway, it makes great radio because story, of course, and radio go together wonderfully. Uh, and somebody telling a story in their voice, wow, that makes great radio. So we've run a few of those of specials. People have really loved them. So that's another one that we're looking at maybe uh, uh, getting getting a regular home on our weekends. Wow. Uh, those three actually sound wonderful to me. So obviously something's got to give if any one of them goes in, though. Uh, so this is a tough decision. It is. It is. It's always hard to figure out what to take off, move things around. Uh, but, um, you know, we might take off the Car Talk repeat that we do now. We run it on Saturday morning and then again on Sunday afternoon. Uh, you know, so maybe maybe we wouldn't repeat that. And you know, there's some other things like that that we could I could look at at moving things around. And, uh, you know, the shows we have on now, they're on because we thought they were good. And most of them do do pretty well. And ha- like I say, have people who like them. Uh, and uh, so, it's, so it's always hard to, to take something off. Well, we're Prairie Public, so we're always interested in what our listeners think about what we do. And maybe we can always do it better or do it a little differently. Maybe uh – Boy, I'll tell you one thing, Doug, that we have done that we seem to keep being able to do better and better, and that's starting tomorrow. It's our short and sweet membership drive. Oh, that was a great segue. And it's amazing to me that, you know, we started this and – it, it, it was considered like a kind of a gimmick. Well, it is. It's a gimmick. You know, we, we do it for Valentine's Day, and we say if you make a contribution, we send out these these truffles that are made at Nicole's Fine Pastry here in North Dakota, and they are fabulous. And we send them out to people. Well, you know, when we first started, we weren't at, we were using some uh, chocolates from a Swiss chocolate maker uh, who had migrated to from Switzerland to West Virginia, and we got these chocolates from West Virginia. They were fabulous. But it's interesting. It kind of really took off after we started using Nicole's truffles. Oh, wow. uh, Nicole's fine pastry in Fargo. Yeah, and uh, Nicole's a you know great chef. She grew up uh, outside of Minot, and uh, went to school at UND, and uh, ended up uh, opening her pastry shop, Nicole's Fine Pastry. That's now got other foods as well, and. Um, so we started offering these truffles. And, and I'll tell you, when we started this project, when we started doing this Valentine's Day drive, um, you know, we raised we, – we got uh, like about uh, I think 30 or 40 people to call in. Oh, that's OK. It's short and sweet, you know. And um, 
we got it up to about 50, and it kind of stuck there a little bit. And we were thinking about dropping it, and then we got Nicole involved in her truffles, and it's grown every year. We're well over 100 boxes of truffles that we're sending out now as of last year, and I'm sure it's going to be more this year. So, All right. Well, what you get if you sign up to be a sustainer for uh, Prairie Public, and that's uh, 10 bucks a month at least, right? Yep. Uh, you get 15 delicious cocoa truffles from Nicole's Fine Pastry, soft balls of chocolate and cream rolled in cocoa powder to give them a velvety surface, uh, boxed in a silver-colored box with dark purple ribbon and a Valentine's card with your message. These are hand-formed European-style confections made with the finest, freshest ingredients. Yeah, take it easy. Doug's getting kind of worked up here. So. We'll be talking about this tomorrow on Hear It Now for our short and sweet pledge drive. Tune in for that. In the meantime, here's an essay from one of our favorite storytellers, Kevin Kling. Out back of Australia, staring at a small arid mountain range, there are huge lakes on the map. But when I look out, there's no water in sight. I'm told they fill up every decade or so. Now, I'm from Minnesota, lakes and prairies. I feel at times the hemispheres here in my head are flipped as the world. At night, even the stars are different than I'm used to. It looks like somebody shook up our bag of stars and threw them across the sky. A man walks into the pub covered in dust, a real Aussie bloke. He sits down, takes a drink, and says, This wine is undrinkable. What? The bushwhackers are even snobs now. (laughs) A couple centuries ago, Europeans arrived here and set up camp south of Adelaide because, according to reports, nobody lived here. A Ghana man or indigenous fellow or someone that lived there told the group to hold on. This isn't a good place to camp. Over there is much better. So the settlers moved to what is now Adelaide. Five years later, the Ghana man asked the settlers, "Uh, how long were you guys thinking about staying? That's still being determined. With Europeans, hoofed animals arrived, sheep and cattle and goats. And this land was originally inhabited by soft-footed creatures, and the hooves devastated the terrain. I'm staying with some of the Adnamatnya people. Adnamatnya means people of the rocks, and their culture goes back at least 40,000 years. I'm walking with Clem Cotard, and he's explaining how virtually every plant here has a use as a food or a medicine. And suddenly what seemed like this barren, arid desert is rich in life. Clem points to the landscape and says, This is our Bible our encyclopedia, and our supermarket. He says the land holds a story, and we are part of this story. An emu, a large flightless bird, runs past. Clem smiles and says, fast food. (laughs) Clem points again. He said, through this valley, the rainbow serpent traveled and ate something that made him sick. That area is avoided for thousands of years because where the rainbow serpent vomited, you will become sick. It turns out they've discovered uranium on the land exactly where the serpent became sick. Uranium mines are springing up now, replacing sacred sites. Clem is worried they will soon take Eagle Mountain. He said, if that mountain goes, we will lose that story. And with it, the knowledge it contains. Like the loss of a plant or an animal, gone is its medicine, its nutrition, its gift. Stories are life. I know things change and that we live in a different time now, but these folks sustained this environment for over 40,000 years. 
I think about my home in Minnesota, and our stories ask some big questions like where we come from before life, where we go after death, what is sacred, what is funny. Our stories tell us who we are and how we fit into our society, but I would love to become acquainted with those stories of our land from the Dakota, the Ojibwe, the Crow. I love my home, but I feel like I'm a renter more than part of this earth. And we all know how we treat things we rent. A buddy of mine says, yeah, a rented car will drive over anything. I think Mother Earth is suffering from trauma these days. She has a fever, so not just hot flashes, a fever. And when she sneezes, we pay big. I also know about stories from a healing perspective. After suffering a loss or a trauma, if you can tell a story about it, you're on the road to claiming it. You're part of it. You can control its path, if not its outcome. And this is essential in the act of healing. It's true, too. Once you have a personal relationship with something... It's harder to take its life for granted. Ask any farm kid who's named a pig. When I teach, I found kids are natural storytellers. They love it, and they have the innate ability to create incredible stories. I keep thinking technology is going to ruin them, but it doesn't. They keep spinning these amazing yarns. And with these invisible threads, they begin to weave their cloak of immortality. The Dakota people say we need to listen to the children because they are closer to the creator in time and remember more. This gives me hope for the future. It gives me hope for our earth. Maybe in time, we will give her back her story. This is Here It Now on Pray Public, and that was storyteller extraordinaire, Kevin Kling, telling a little story he titled Australia. Dakota Date Book is coming up. Support for this program is provided by the North Dakota Education Association, an organization of 8,000 school employees working to ensure great public schools for every child. Subscribe to our podcast or listen to a broadcast. Either way, recent shows of Hear It Now are available online. So if you missed a show, you can hear it now or hear it anytime, anywhere. All day, all night, a friend in Fiji, your aunt in Vermont, can tune into a show you just know they'd want to hear or they can browse for other topics of interest. So spread the word and hear it now at prairiepublic.org. This is Dakota Datebook for January 29th. On this date in 1940, more than 800 people gathered in Park River to discuss a proposed power plant in Grand Forks. The Nodak Rural Electric Cooperative Facility would be powered by diesel fuel, supplying electric energy to a combined group of REA projects, including several in Minnesota. However, many residents in eastern North Dakota opposed the proposal, and the Walsh County Press reported that at this meeting, Charges of railroading, politics, and an alleged dictatorial policy of the REA in Washington were hurled by speakers, both from the floor and from the platform. The Walsh County Press was very outspoken about the matter. 
It stated that if the plant were built elsewhere along the Sioux Railroad lines, such as Fordville in Walsh County, North Dakota lignite could be used to power it instead of diesel fuel and claimed that politics played the major part in deciding the location. After reporting on the meeting, the newspaper claimed those who heard the man from the REA offices in Washington speak could not help but be impressed with the idea he tried to put across, which can be expressed in these words. We know that a diesel plant at Grand Forks is the best thing for you, and if you want REA energy, you better take it and like it. The newspaper called him a so-called research engineer, stating that he was really ignorant of the comparative costs of lignite and diesel fuel, and that this paper hopes when Mr. Wood returns to Washington, he will report that a lot of rural people in Walsh and adjoining counties are not yet willing to take all orders from Washington, and they are ready and anxious to fight for what they believe is right. The Walsh County Press included some irate comments for the Grand Forks Herald. The press stated that the Herald did not publish and even withheld information about these goings-on, writing, We are not surprised at the Herald's dull editorial policy. It dates back for years. We recall how Jerry Bacon used to fight the nonpartisan league until the state mill and elevator was built in Grand Forks, whereupon a hush-hush policy was adopted and has been followed to this day. And also this. Question. When does a newspaper cease to be a newspaper? Answer. When it's the Grand Forks Herald. Despite the protests, the plan moved ahead, and that July, the Rural Electrification Administration announced a $60,000 loan to build a plant in Grand Forks. Today's Dakota Date Book was written by Sarah Walker. I'm Merrill Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from the North Dakota Humanities Council. The Short and Sweet Membership Drive starts Wednesday, just in time for Valentine's Day. It's your opportunity to share your love of Prairie Public by renewing or starting your membership and getting your Valentine some wonderful North Dakota handmade truffles. Go to prairiepublic.org for more information. This is here at Now on Prairie Public. Just enough time to let you know that we will indeed be at Nicole's Fine Pastry for Here at Now on Wednesday, 3 to 4, broadcasting live, talking about truffles that you can own if you, you know, pony up a little to Prairie Public. We're looking for new sustaining members, so 10 bucks a month at least, $120 a year, and you get your box of truffles, and it's just in time for Valentine's Day. So that's coming up tomorrow. On Thursday, we're going to kind of keep with the chocolate theme. We're going to talk uh, with a member of the Institute of Food Technologists, uh, and we'll get her take on chocolate. And of course, you can still get your free box of chocolate of truffles that you pay for by supporting Prairie Public. And we'll have Matt O'Lean with his movie review on Thursday as well. So we look forward to having you with us Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday for our monthly Editor's Roundtable on Hear It Now. In the meantime, have a great evening.